It's great to see everybody this morning. And this is a first time, a first time in a long time. We started a series back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And we're going to keep going in that series this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, you can do that. We're going to be talking a little bit about prayer this morning and especially uh, what it actually looks like to pray well, uh, really especially during this Advent season, this time when we are looking back and remembering everything that was accomplished for us in the first Advent of Christ and everything that's still to come uh, when he returns again. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, uh, I promise you we would be turning the page from chapter 5 to 6. We were like, I think we were in chapter 5 for about six weeks in a row, and so uh, we are going to be moving on there, but you know, when I was growing up, prayer was one of those things that I knew I should probably do a little bit more, but I had so many questions about it actually kept me from uh, engaging in prayer like I should. Like I was kind of always, always wondering, okay, if God knows what I need before I pray, then why in the world should we pray? And I had all these different kinds of questions, like, like do my prayers actually accomplish anything, or, or is he already made up in his mind what he wants to do, and do my prayers actually matter, right? I mean, when I go to Chick-fil-A, do I need to pray for Chick-fil-A, or is it already pre-blessed? You know, really important questions like that. I mean, how many fries can you get away with before you need to pray for it as a meal, right? Thank you, John Chris video and stuff like that. But, uh, right, like really, really important questions about prayer. Um, I mean, like what are we supposed to do? Like Caleb tapped into this not long ago. I was teaching him how to pray, and he tapped into the complexity about it. But I was teaching him to pray, and he just cried out one day, and he's like, Daddy, I don't want to pray because I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be saying at this time. Like, well, like, what am I supposed to say? I can't see Jesus. What am I supposed to say during this time? And I wanted to be like, buddy, I was there. Like, I, I, I get it. Like, it's, it. It's a little bit complex, which is why I need to teach you some of these things. Um, I've shared with you in the past before, but when I was growing up and first started walking with the Lord, I, I was an excessive father-godder in my prayers. And this is a major problem I've repented of since that time. But you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I was the guy that just said about like 52 times in a prayer, thank you, Father God, Father God, Father, Father God. Uh, I don't know, there's this conviction inside of me, I think, that I needed to do like first and last name with God to, to be able to get his attention. And then he's going to start paying attention and things like that. And so it was like everything I was doing was like, Father God, I praise you for this. Thank you, Father God, Father, 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 Father God. And one of my youth pastors reached out to me one day, and he's like, bro, I counted 27 times of that prayer. You need to like, it's okay to think about some of the things that you're praying through uh, before you actually say them, right? But, I mean, it's a complicated deal, and when we don't really know where we're going or what we're doing, I mean, we say really, really, really weird things. I mean, there's a number of different people that think that uh, I need to scream in order to get God's attention, right? I mean, we've got the screamer that's always raising their voices and screaming, and they're kind of, I mean, they're, they're shouting out and preaching out their, their prayers and stuff like that because evidently God's deaf, and, you know, he can't really hear you, and the louder that you are, the, uh, the better he's going to be able to hear your prayers, and then he's going to respond and things like that, and then... You've got the other people in your church who are kind of going, okay, I know that my God doesn't need a hearing aid, and so uh, I'm going to whisper my prayers, and I'm going I'm to put his little eternal hearing to the test and make sure that he knows everything. And so they're the, the quiet whispers, and you never really know when they're done praying and things like that. You know what I'm talking about? You're kind of like, you're looking around during the prayer time. You're like, are you done? Well, was that an amen? You, know, you don't really know what's going on. And you've got the, you've got the interrupters, right? Uh, these are the people that are in the prayer time. You don't, they don't really want to pray. They just want to agree with everything that you're saying. So you're out there praying out loud and stuff, and then the interrupter's like, mm, amen, Father, yes, amen, hallelujah. And you're like going, I don't know what I was just saying right then because, you know, they, they're just kind of just interrupting the entire thing. And, I mean, we do really, really weird things when we don't really know how to pray. 
And so this morning, that's what I want to get into. That's what Jesus is going to help us with because he's going to kind of just let our guard down a little bit and say, hey, it, look, it's really, really not that complicated. And so again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to go one through really probably verse 17 here. Now again, if you're joining us for the first time in a long time, this is a continuation of uh, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount where we've been the last uh, number of weeks. He's still doing the exact same message. He's rebuking the religious hypocrisy of his day. That's what he's going after. And he's essentially raising this bar of morality all around us to essentially say that, that real righteousness, this true righteousness, this righteousness from God, it's about more than the things that you do. It's about why you do the things that you do and, and what's going on inside your heart. So verse 21, it's not just about murder that's a problem. It's about the anger that's inside your heart. Like, that's just as much of a problem. And verse 27, it's not just about physical adultery, but it's about the lust going on inside your heart for someone who is also then not your spouse. That's just as much of a problem. And, and it's not just your ability to make a promise, but it's actually what's going on inside of your heart and your desire to let your yes be yes, your no be no, and things of that nature. Like, that's just as much of a problem. And, and it's not just that you're able to love the people that you like, the people that are just similar to you and things like that. It's your ability to love your neighbor. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that's that's what true righteousness looks like. It's not just the things that you do, it's everything that's going on inside your heart. And so when we turn the page of chapter 6, we got to understand this is one continuous sermon. He's continuing the, the same message, and he's continuing to rebuke the religious hypocrisy of his day, but this time he's doing it in the context of how we typically then pray. And I think we're going to see some similar themes and some things are going to kind of hit home with us. So let's pick it up here together in verse 1. Here's what he says next. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you're going to have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets in order to be honored by other people. In other words, like you don't need to do everything, like all your great deeds and your generosity and righteousness doesn't have to be blasted on social media, right? Like a hashtag sacrificial giving, right? Look how awesome my quiet time was today and, and things like it doesn't always have to be on social media for everybody to see. Uh, truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I want you to notice the repetition in this text, right? Anytime that you're doing Bible study or anything like that, you're always going to circle the words that continue to get repeated. Uh, Jesus is mentioning three different times here the concept of rewards in order to make this very, very simple point that superficial obedience in this realm, righteousness, generosity, and things of that nature, superficial obedience in this realm is always going to only bring about superficial rewards. I mean, that's what he's saying here. Superficial obedience and righteousness, generosity, giving, prayer, things of that nature, it's only going to bring about superficial rewards. In other words, like you may be getting a whole lot of praise and likes and loves and shares and things of that nature and stuff for the things that we're posting online and broadcasting to the entire world. But if that's all that you have to give, if those are the only times that we are engaging with the Lord Jesus Christ and engaging in acts of righteousness and generosity and things of that nature, then that is the fullness of a reward. Those are not the things that are going to impress the heart of God. And it's the same thing in verse 5 when he, when he applies it here in the context of prayer. Here's what he says next. Two different things, how not to pray. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, he says, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street quarters in order to be seen by other people. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into the room, close the door, and pray to the Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And so uh, once again, what we're seeing in this passage is not about the privatization of religious practice, the privatization of prayer, or anything like that. Thank you, Bill Maher and every antagonist to uh, public religious practice of things of that nature, right? That's not what we're talking about. This is not, uh, hey, you guys need to stop, see you at the poll or anything like that. Uh, this is essentially just, uh, it, 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 this isn't about doing those kinds of things. Jesus did his entire ministry publicly, right? He prayed in private. He also prayed in public. He healed in private. He healed in public. He fed uh, the multitudes in public. He also fed people in private. So that's not what this whole thing is about. This is about religious people who only pray in order to get the things that they really, really want. This is about religious people who know how to use prayer in order to elevate themselves or to get the things that their heart most desires, right? This is about people who only pray when they can post about it online, right? This is about the elder who only prays at a public church meeting. This is about the pastor who will only pray for his sermon in public. This is about uh, people who have figured out that there is a way that you can use religion to help you gain power in a number of different ways. And so praying is not the issue for Jesus here. There's a lot of different people who pray, but Jesus wants to know why you pray, right? Is he, is he the means to a better reward, or is he actually the reward of your time with him in prayer? It's why he teaches us in the very next verse to start out your prayer and worship, right? Verse 9, he's going to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? The word hallowed means holy be your name, sacred be your name. First thing that you do when you gather and you settle down to go before the Lord in prayer is to settle your heart and to come to him and worship. Lord, holy be your name, sacred be your name. I'm lifting your name up first before I ask you for anything else down the, long, down the line. The only thing I care about is just worshiping you and being in your presence. And, and so I'm willing to go as Jesus is talking about here, I'm willing to go and pray actually in secret because simply because I can't. Like all I want to do is just worship him and lift him up. And for Jesus, this is exactly where it all begins. He wants to know like, how do you see our relationship? How do you see your time with me? Am I always the means to a better reward for you or am I ever actually the reward? Like what Jesus is getting at here is like, is it, what's our relationship like? This is the difference between a working relationship that you and I may have with a, a boss or something like that and the relationship that you have with someone that you love. Like the relationship you have with your boss, your boss exists to help you get a better reward, that thing, a promotion, that, 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 that title, that paycheck, the thing that you most want. But when you're in a relationship with a spouse or someone that you actually love, then, then they become the reward of that time together, right? It, it's why we do the certain things that we do, and we don't really care that we do them. I mean, I'll never forget when we were first getting together and the first few years of our marriage, Cat uh, would come to me, to, come with me to these different sports bars. We'd go with all these Gator alumni, Aggie alumni, to go watch these football games. And she'd come and bring her books. She had no, she didn't care less about these games, but she would go and she'd bring these books to these sports bars. We'd watch a game. And she'd just go to be with me because, like, that was the reward, right? I mean, that was the time. Like, that's what you do for someone that you love. I'd go to the Arboretum over and over and over again today, and I could care less about flowers. Right? I, I do that all the time. I've seen every single romantic economy, uh, comedy with Ryan Gosling in it that you could possibly imagine, right? And uh, it's just what we do when we were first dating. Like, we would have these times on the phone together, and we say ridiculous things like, like, uh, like you hang up. No, 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 you hang up. No, you hang up. Okay, we're going to do this together. One, two, three. Okay, no, you're still there. Right? And we say these ridiculous, stupid things, right? And, and like, none of it mattered because our time, like, that was the reward. 
Like all I wanted to do was to be with her. Like she's the reward. And it's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Like is he the reward or is he just the means to your better reward? Church, when Jesus becomes the reward, then, then prayer is not a chore for you. Prayer is not a discipline that you have to engage in, that you regret every single time. When he's the reward, like it's not a chore. It's the most natural thing that you and I could possibly do. I mean, you're going to get away and you're going to go and, and, and no one else is going to be around. And you're going to go and you're going to fall on your knees in prayer simply because you can and you're going to cry out to him, and you're going to say, God, like, I've got no agenda today. I just simply want to just say, like, holy, holy, holy be your name. Sacred be your name. Glorious be your name. Father, your word says that you're eternal. And I can't, my mind can't even wrap my mind around what that means, that you had no beginning. Uh, Lord, holy be your name. Sacred be your name. Praised be your name. Father, all the different things that you've given to me, this, this roof over my head, the air conditioning, the car that I drive, this family, the friends, the people, like this provision around here, like this community of believers, like all these different things. Father, just praise you and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the different things that you've done. Holy and glorious be your name. No other agenda on the table simply to be with you and to give you the praise and glory that you're due. I love the way that J.D. Greer talks about this. He says, he says, before we ask the Lord for anything, we have got to know the treasure that we have first and foremost in him. Otherwise, everything that you ask for will ultimately disappoint because it will be a substitute for him. You'll say, God, I need to be rich. I need to be healthy or married or in a better marriage in order to be happy. And then you'll worship and you're going to rely on those things for joy instead of him. Church, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of people who pray. But Jesus is concerned about like, why you pray. The key to effective prayer, like, it's not just in the fact that you're praying, it's, it's what's going on inside. And so for Jesus, he's kind of saying, okay, like, what's actually taking place in here? Am I the means to a better reward, or do you actually think that I'm a good reward in and of itself? He continues, there's another negative example in verse 7. He says, uh, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they're going to be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father, again, knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, it's like stop trying to impress him or coerce him or manipulate him into giving you the things that you've asked for. Like you just don't have to do that. Like you don't have to manipulate someone who's not already hostile to you. You don't have to coerce someone. Stop babbling like the pagans, he says, people who think that he's hostile and he's angry and he's not already inclined to give you good gifts for the children that he loves. Like, like, like stop thinking that you need to pray in Latin or, or five times a day, like facing Jerusalem or with all these different candles around or with this kind of statue or, or this, that, and the other. Like, like, stop thinking that those are the keys to getting his attentive ear. Like, that's not how it is. He already knows what you need, number one, is what he says right there. And then number two, he's just not hostile. I mean, over and over again, he's, like, he's presenting himself to us as our father. Chapter 7, he's going to say he's not just any old father. In other words, he's not like your father that you grew up in. He's not like your father that you see on TV or that you grew up around who was hostile and angry all the time, who didn't treat you like, like you deserve to be treated. Like he's a good and loving father who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. Like that's who he is. In other words, like what he's saying right here is he's giving us permission to come to him boldly as a child would come to a father who loves him. Like that's, what, that's the permission that he's given. We get to come to him boldly as a child comes to a father who, who he knows already loves him. And I think we get some of this picture that's going on right here, right? I, I, there's a special relationship between a child and a father when they're secure in that father's love. Like, like Caleb's able to get away with, with th things with me that no one else can get away with. I mean, like, like no one has access to my affections quite like that kid does. 
I mean, it's one of the benefits of being my son. I mean, first thing in the morning, I mean, early in the morning, even before Kat and I will wake up, sometimes he'll just run in, and he'll just run in while we're dead asleep, and he'll just jump right on top of us, and he'll start immediately try to like, wrestle with me and stuff like that. And I promise you, like, if Radabaugh did that to me, it's just not the same thing. Like, like I, I'm going to get violent and just start punching and stuff like that. But, like, Caleb has access to my affections that no one else does. Like, he can get away with things, and he comes to me boldly. I come home from work, and the dude has already got a mask and a cape, and he's got these swords out. And he, like, immediately like, runs and attacks me and stuff like that. And is, like, wanting to get going and start fighting and stuff like that. Like, anyone else does that, it's not the same thing. Church is done, and immediately he's going to run out there. And I promise you, he's going to run and try to tackle me and lay me out. Like, these are things that, like, no one else can do. This is benefits of that father and son relationship. And so not only is he a father who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves, but we get to approach our prayer time putting ourselves in the position of this child who has such a father and enjoys such time with the children that he loves. Like, that's the picture that he's giving here. In other words, like, there's no reason in the world that you and I should ever be shy about coming to the father in prayer. He's just not hostile. That's not who he is. He's just not hostile. I mean, a few years back, I'll never forget, I was, uh, the apartment complex is across the street that way. And uh, I've met a guy, and he was a believer already, and we're talking about all kinds of things about the Lord and, and his story and his life, and kind of came to the point, I asked him if there's anything I could pray for him about, and, and he just looked down, and he just was like, no, he's like, he's like no, nah, man, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to bother God with my problems. And I wanted to just cry out and just, like, like it's not a bother to a father who loves you and loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. Like, this is not the disposition that he has. I was talking with a lady a number of years ago as well, and this is the exact same thing. We're talking, and, and she was just saying, I'm numb to the things of God. I can't come back to him. I, I know I should pray. I don't actually pray. And I asked her, I was like, what's keeping you from prayer? And she just goes, you have no idea the things that I've done in my past. Church, how many times have I shared similar stories to that uh, from this pulpit? Like, this is the thing that keeps people from coming to the Lord in prayer, coming to the Lord, reading his word, coming to the Lord and engaging with him once again. You have no idea the things that I've done in my past. And what I'm saying here is that even though those things have been done in the past, like he's not hostile towards you if you are actually in Christ Jesus. John is really, really, really clear about this. As many as have received him, to them he is given right to be called children of God. That's who you are. He is the good and loving heavenly father. You are the child that he loves. Paul's going to say there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, church, like he's just, he's just not hostile towards you anymore. Like he is a good and loving father that enjoys this time. He welcomes this time and he says, come, you can jump on me anytime that you want to. You can stab me with your play swords. Like you, even, like you can come any given time because that's the kind of relationship that we have. Church, I mean, this is incredibly good news. I mean, I'll never forget the day that Caleb was born, I all of a sudden understood every single Liam Neeson movie ever made, right? You know what I'm talking about. Like every movie of his is, hey, you stole a child or someone that I love, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to come back and kill you. I, I, I understood that. I go, I'm holding that child, and I'm sitting there kind of going, like, this is different than anything else that I've ever experienced in my life. Like, this is completely different. Like, there's nothing that a loving father would not do for the actual good of the child that he loves. And what Jesus is saying here is that in, until we get that, we'll never be able to come to him boldly in prayer. 
That is the image that he's given to us. He's not hostile. He's not resistant. He's not, he's not bored. He's not numb. He's not bothered every single time that we come to him simply to worship or any time that we come to him to ask him for the things that he's burdened upon our hearts. It's not the disposition of this father. He continues on and he says, come boldly as a child to a loving father. Begin with worship by saying, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, sacred be your name. And then he continues on and and he tells us to come to the Lord in prayer with a posture of submission. And I love this because this is the posture that we have, especially during this Advent season, when you and I are looking around and you're reminded at Thanksgiving, you're reminded at Christmas of, hey, there's a lot of blessings, there's a lot of great things that are going on, but for a lot of us, this is that time of year we're reminded of who's not at the table this year. Like This is that time of season when you remember and you reflect on everything that took place this past year and some of the sadness and some of the difficulties that you're going on, that are going on in your heart. And in the middle of that place, as we are longing for Christ to return and for him to come back and to make all things brand new, he invites us to pray like this. And he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, like I'm not asking you for my kingdom to come. I'm not coming to the Lord in prayer saying, God, it's about my kingdom. It's about my elevation. My kingdom come. This isn't about my will being done. This is about your kingdom coming. And this is about your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, everything that is true in the heavenly realm, everything that is true like in the heavenlies and everything that will be true when Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom once again here on earth, everything that will be true then, God, would you make those things true right now? God, I'm asking that you would come and that you would bring your kingdom now. Your will be done right now. Paul says in Philippians 2 that there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So God, would you come and would you let those things become true right now? Would you let your spirit reign on us right now? Father, would you add to our number daily those who are being saved in our children's ministry over in Circle One, through the food pantry, right? Through a refugee outreach, through a homeless outreach in our community, through Fourth Sunday Evangelism, through Revive Texas, Revive everything else around here, God. In, the, in your spirit, would you let it rain on us? And all of those things, would you let them be true right now? Father, your word says when your kingdom is established here on earth, Revelation says that you're going to come back again and you're going to wipe away every single tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more sin, no more death, no more crying and no more pain. Like that's what the kingdom looks like when Christ is going to return. Like this is going to be a time when there's going to be no more racism. There's going to be no more abuse. There's going to be no more sexual abuse. There's going to be no more inequality. There's going to be no more cancer. There's going to be no more dementia. There's going to be no more hatred in the world. There's going to be no more ignorance or callousness or confusion or miscarriage or cheating or abandonment or addiction or betrayal or hypocrisy or sadness or loss. And so, Father, like I'm not praying for my kingdom to come here. And I'm not praying that my will be done. I need your kingdom to come and I need your will to be done. I'm asking for the Sydney valleys of the world to continue to be healed every single time that we pray. And Father, I'm asking that you would allow mental illness to completely melt away. And Father, I'm praying that, that suicidal thoughts would dissipate immediately at your throne. And I'm praying that, that loneliness would be filled with the assurance of your presence. And Father, I'm asking that divisiveness in the world would be replaced with unity and that brokenness and hopeless marriages would be restored into unity and that violence would be replaced with peace. And church, that is how he invites us to pray. In the middle of this Advent season, when you and I are longing and you're looking around at the world around you and you're reading the headlines and you're disgusted at the way that things are 
and you're reminded of the sadness that's in your heart for the people that are lost or the broken relationships that are in your life. In the middle of this Advent season, he is saying, I'm inviting you to pray and ask for my kingdom to come and my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even, like, even when the answer is not yet. Even when the answer is not yet, we get to come to him and say, yet, yet not my will, but your will be done. I mean, it's exactly what Jesus modeled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to the cross, and I love this prayer. It's a perfect prayer. He says, Father, like, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Like, I know the pain that's coming my way. I know what it's like to hang, uh, torturing, uh, being tortured on a cross. Like, I know what's coming up, and I know how dark this is. This is not a part of your future kingdom. Yet here it is at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. Father, if you've got a, a greater wisdom and what's coming my way, God, it's not my will, but it's your will be done. Church, it's not a lack of faith when we submit to the will of the Father. Like, it's not a lack of faith when we come here and say, God, I'm asking for your kingdom. I'm asking for your kingdom. Everything that's true in your kingdom, I'm asking and I'm believing in Jesus' name that you'll bring your kingdom. Yet at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. All we're doing when we pray like that is just acknowledging that his wisdom is far superior than our own. And I think we get this. We see this all over the all over the place. Like when I was growing up, I was mad at my parents all the time that I couldn't play in the street or run with scissors or play with a, a, you know, a blow dryer in the bathtub while I was, you know, doing my bath and things of that nature. And like I was mad. I'm like, mom and dad, you hate me. You steal my joy. What are you doing? Like you don't know what you're talking about. And of course, this side of probably around 23, I figured out like, like there was, there was wisdom in some of those things, right? Like, let me ask, like what is greater, the disparity between the wisdom of a child and their parents or the disparity in wisdom between my own wisdom and God's. I mean, that's what we're doing when we're praying and we're saying, okay, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, I'll never forget our prayer for Caleb when he was born. One of the most terrifying things, but we were saying, God, I'm absolutely praying for health for this child. God, would 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 you bring your health for him? Would you allow him to come to know you at a young age? Would you allow him to know the joy of walking with you for a lifetime? Would your protection be around him? Yet, at the end of the day, we had to come before him and we had to cry out and say, God, yet at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. And Father, if, it, if in your sovereignty and in your goodness, like it, it, it means that things are not going to be as easy for us as we would hope, yet at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. God, would you prepare me, would you prepare Kat for whatever still may come our way, whatever difficulties like whatever unforeseen circumstances, whatever delays, whatever that may be, God, would you just prepare us for anything that would come our way? Not my will, but your will be done. Even in the non-kingdom things, it's a beautiful thing to pray for these things. Father, like there's a promotion coming our way, and God, you know what that would do. I love this thing. I love my job. And I, yes, God, I'm asking you for this promotion over here, yet at the end of the day, it's not my will, but it's your will be done. And Father, if in your wisdom, you're looking at this thing kind of going, okay, I know that if you get this promotion, it's going to go to your head and it's going to create all this pride and it's going to create all this greed and it's not going to be returned for the glory of his name, then, then Father, I trust you because it's not my will, but it's your will be done. Even in this relationship, God, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to marry her or him. And Father, you know that I want to and things of that nature, yet at the end of the day, not my will, but your will be done. I'm asking that things would happen. I'm asking that things would be taken care of. I'm hoping and praying that you're going to lead and you're going to do all these things over here. Yet at the end of the day, not my will, Father, but your will be done. This house, God, if there's a different house, 
that's going to give me uh, greater opportunities with my neighbors and the people around us, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Church, like that's how he's inviting us to pray. He is a good and loving father who loves to give good gifts to the children that he loves. And until we're able to rest in those things, like we're never going to be able to desire or surrender to his kingdom and his will being done. He continues with a few more things in this prayer. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on those things, but he, he encourages us to ask for a number of things that we know are always according to his will. Daily bread or provision in verse 11. Like give us this day our daily bread. Forgiveness in verse 12. Forgive, our, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. To deliver us from evil in verse 13. Church, here it is. The underlying assumption in all of these things that Jesus is telling, to us, is te- telling us in this prayer is this. Is that when we pray, like things actually change. Like that is the underlying assumption in the beauty of the Lord's prayer. I mean, he's inviting us to pray. And, and, and the key to effective prayer is, is actually believing that that when we pray, things will change. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about, yeah, I'm always going to change, right? You've heard this line from C.S. Lewis before. I, you know how much I love C.S. Lewis on, on a million different things, but he's wrong on this. Like he, he, there's this great line, if you saw the movie Shadowlands, it's a movie about his story and his own biography and things like that. And there's this line towards the end of the movie where his wife comes to him and asks him, do you actually believe that God changes things when you pray? And his response is a famous one, but he goes, I don't know if it changes things, but I know that it always changes me. How many of you guys have heard this quote before? Like, we get in our heads all the time, don't we? We allow, our, like, well, somehow we believe that, that, that we allow our theology to confuse this whole matter, and we kind of, we start thinking that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offend the sovereignty of God if I actually believe that, that my prayers have a way of changing different things over here, and it's just not the testimony of Scripture, Exodus chapter 17, like God has already assured Israel of a victory in battle, yet um, nevertheless, he still made the outcome of that war dependent upon the posture of Moses' hands. You remember this, Exodus 17, it literally says this, when his hands were lifted up, the Israelites were winning, but as soon as they went down, they started to lose. Church, like, what do we do with that? Like, in God's sovereignty, he chose the outcome of a war, which he's already promised ahead of time. In God's sovereignty, he's chosen the outcome of the war to depend solely upon the prayers of the people and the posture of Moses' hands. Like he, he's, a, he's chosen in his sovereignty to work through the prayers of his people. I love the way that Andrew Murray talks about it. He puts it like this. He says, God rules the world and the church through the prayers of his people. That God should have made that, that, the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent upon the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery and yet an absolute certainty. God calls for intercessors in his grace. He has made his work dependent upon them. In fact, he actually waits for them. Church, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus didn't say, ask and you're going to be changed for the asking, and seek and you're going to be changed for the seeking. He says, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you're going to find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. It's the same thing in James 5, 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Because it actually matters, it changes things, it actually it does something. It, it, God moves in response to our prayer over and over and over again. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. In other words, you don't always need anything. You can come to the Lord in prayer in secret saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise be to your name. Thanks be to your name. Are you happy? Pray like that. Is anyone among you sick? Let the elders of the church pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. 
The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. For the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective church. In other words, it absolutely changes things. But here it is. How you pray matters. Church, it absolutely changes things. But not all prayers are created equal. That's what he's saying. Is he ever the reward of your prayer time? Or is he only the means of a different reward? When you pray, like are you actually coming in genuine faith? Like believing that he actually wants to bring in his kingdom? And that he has the power to come and to bring in his kingdom? Or deep down inside, do you think that the whole thing is simply an act to change you from the inside out? Like when you pray, are you actually coming in genuine humility, having confessed your sin to one another? Or is the whole thing a charade? And and we're still pretending that everything is okay on the outside because like what James just said is that that's when you're going to be healed. In other words, church, like, like not all prayers are the same. Like Jesus wants to know why you pray. He wants to know what's going on in here. It's not just the fact that you're out there praying, but he wants to know like what's going on inside. Is there genuine humility? Is there a repentant spirit? Is there a heart that believes that God wants to come and bring in his kingdom right now? Even in fasting, I love this, even in fasting, church, like there's a way to fast that completely misses the point of it. There's a fantastic passage, Isaiah chapter 58. Um, There's a crazy dialogue in here between the nation of Israel and God the Father coming out through the prophet Isaiah. I want you to check out this passage. Here's what it says. Isaiah 58, this is verse 3 through 4. This is the Israelites saying, and they cry out to God, and they say, why have we fasted? They say, and, and you haven't seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? In other words, Father, like we've been, we've been fasting all day. We've been praying. We've been humbling ourselves before you, and it just seems like you're not even paying attention to us. Like what's up with that, God? And look at how the Lord responds. He says, yet on that day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. And in striking each other with wicked fists. In other words, like all this religious exertion, like you're going through the motions. Even though you're fasting, like your heart is completely missing the point of fasting. You're going through all these motions. You're out there, you're praying. And it's a false humility and things like that. So here's what he says. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Church, like we all pray. But not all prayers are created equal. Like, not all prayers are the same. Even with fasting, like, there's a way to completely miss the entire point of fasting. Like, fasting exists. It is a, it's supposed to be this physical expression of a genuine inner spiritual hunger, essentially for the kingdom of God to come and, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even a few chapters later, you remember this whole dialogue where, where I think it's John the Baptist's disciples are coming to Jesus and just saying, hey, Jesus, we don't see your disciples praying. Why is that? Why, why aren't they fasting? Like, everybody else is fasting, but your guys, they're not fasting. What's the deal? And Jesus responds and he says, I'm, I'm here. Like, the reason they're not fasting is because they've got me. The kingdom is here. Like I'm here. I'm present with them. I'm bringing about my, my work is being done right now. That's why you fast. You are longing spiritually inside. You are hungering for the kingdom of God to come in a powerful and incredible way. But that's just not what's going on here. Like they're fasting. They're going through the motions of different things. Like they're saying, yeah, I'm desperate. But they're not actually desperate for the kingdom of God to come. Listen to what the Lord says next in verse 5. Is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. In other words, is that the point of fasting? Like, is the point of fasting only to humble yourself and only to feel desperate and only to give lip service to, Father, I screwed up once again? Like, you know this, right? 
There's a lot of us that are really, really, really good at asking for forgiveness and not really meaning it. Right, there's a lot of us that are great at coming to our accountability group and being like, guys, I blew it again this past week. My bad. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. What can I say? Whatever. Right? Like, there's a way to do that really, really well. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Is that it? Is, is fasting just about humility and the confession of sin? Here it is. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Here it is. Is this not the kind of fasting that I've chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice. To untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Like, isn't that the point of the fast? Like, isn't the point of the fast that, that my kingdom would come, that my will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? And therein lies the problem to many of our prayers. Like, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, that's just not what we, what we really, really, really want. And, and don't get me wrong, like, we love talking about it. We like the idea of him coming back and loosening the chains of injustice as long as, like, I don't have to be a part of that process. And we love the idea of talking about him, you know, setting the oppressed free as long as it doesn't mean that I need to be the one who speaks up on the behalf of the oppressed. And we love the idea of him clothing the naked and feeding the hungry as long as it doesn't actually cost me anything along the way. I mean, we love talking about the kingdom. Yes, God, let your kingdom come. We want you to return. I just don't want to have to be used by you to help bring it about. Church, your prayers can absolutely change something. Like the testimony of scripture is that when God's people come together and they fall on their face before him and they cry out to God in prayer, like he moves in response to prayer. Over and over and over again, that is the testimony of the church all through Acts continuing to this day. Revival comes about when the people of God gather and they cry out to him in honesty, worshiping him, humble before him, repentant in their attitudes, eagerly desiring the kingdom of God to come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God moves in response to our prayers. But how you do it, it absolutely matters. Not all prayers are created the same. And so Jesus comes in and he says, okay, you want to know how to pray? Religious people, I see you out there. Like I, I see these religious crowds. We've got the Patokos. We've got the poor of the world here. We've got the religious lead over here. And you're asking me, okay, how do you want to pray? Here's how you pray. You don't pray like those hypocrites over there. You don't pray like the religious people over there who do it just to be seen, who do it so other people can applaud them and, and say, hey, look, what an awesome person that, that person is. Look at those incredible words. Look at all that Bible knowledge. You don't do it in order to be seen by other people. You don't pray like the religious majority of the day who are great at saying a bunch of words, who are great at going through the motions in prayer, but have no real faith or no real desire to see my kingdom actually come or to consider the fact that I may want to use them to help be the answer to the prayers that they're praying. So he says, instead, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Sacred be your name. Church, do you want to be a people? Are you willing to go and pray to him in secret when no one else is around simply because you can? Like, is that the kind of relationship that you have? Like, you want to know how to pray? Like, I want to know. Are you willing to pray when your wife isn't around, when your kids aren't around, when, 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 when social media is not around, when you're not at church, 
when no one else is around? Are you willing to bow on your face before God and say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not my kingdom that I'm asking for. It's not my will that I'm longing for. It's all about you. It is all about your praise and it is all about your glory. Church, is that what's going on inside of your heart? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.